I've entitled this morning's message, The Treasures, the Threats, and the Truth. Um, in your bulletin, there's a, a little bit of a typo error. It says Colossians 1, 1 through 10. We're, of course, in Colossians 2, 1 through 10. But dealing with uh, the treasures, the threats, and the truths of the gospel message. You may recall in our introduction to the book, and I've mentioned a couple of times, the purposes for which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Colossae. There were three purposes that emerge uh, through the text. I mean, reading kind of all four chapters. There are three that emerge, and yet they don't, they don't come out like, Paul saying, okay, here's number one, here's why I'm writing to you, or here's number two, here's number three. But they, they surface as we read through the, the entirety of the book. One of them, uh, and we had dealt with this earlier in a couple of our studies before, was that he wanted to uh, inform the Colossian believers about his circumstances uh, and the way in which he's writing this letter, the, the environment that he's living in while he's writing it, we know historically that the Apostle Paul is, is in Rome. He's under house arrest. Uh, Epaphras has come to him with the news of these believers in this town called Colossae that he had actually never been to. He didn't plant this church, but he hears of, of their steadfastness, their love for the saints. And so he wants to be sure and let them know of how he's doing and the circumstances from which he is uh, living. Uh, over in the third verse of uh, chapter 4, he actually says the, this to them. He says in verse 3, Meanwhile that I'm praying, pray also for us that God will open a door to us uh, that God will open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains. So a couple of times throughout he mentions the fact that uh, he's, he's bound. He's bound there in Rome uh, as a prisoner yet to stand trial for uh, the crimes that he's been accused of. And so another reason that he wrote the letter, though, was that he, he sought to show the Colossian believers the, the deity, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Um, if you look backwards a bit to verse 18 of chapter 1, which we dealt with in a previous study, uh, he says, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the first, uh, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, may have the preeminence. And so he wanted to be sure to, uh, in writing, paint a clear picture of the supremacy of Christ because of what came to be known as the Colossian heresy that was beginning to 
filter its way into the belief system of those believers there. And the third reason that he was writing the letter, it comes out through the chapters, is that he wanted to take these believers who had clearly established a faith in Christ, and we'll get to the issues of of what was threatening the simplicity of that faith in, in a moment, but he wanted to, in his text, uh, in his writings, lead them to a greater maturity in Christ. And to that point is where we land this morning. Uh, I want you to back up and come with me to verse 1 of chapter 2. As he begins to want to lead these believers to a greater maturity in their faith. When he says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he wanted them to know what a great conflict he has for them. He mentions also that he is in conflict for them and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. It affirms the fact that Paul had never been to this city. But he mentions Laodicea right alongside the letter to Colossae. And what we know by reason of historical maps is that on the trade routes, um, Laodicea was just a bit uh, west northwest of Colossae. And if you uh, Google a map of these times, you will find, interestingly enough, that there are townships all around this area with names that if you've read uh, Revelation at all at any time in your uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, there are towns all near there. Philadelphia is near there, Sardis is near there, Thyatira is near there, Pergamos is near there, Smyrna, Ephesus, sound familiar. And those cities and the churches in those cities were, are, they were real churches that uh, John, as he was given the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation that he was writing to. He was writing to real people in real churches, but also writing prophetically to what would become the church at large over uh, this dispensation in which we live, known as the church age. And Paul uses a word there in verse 1 that's very interesting when he says, uh, I want you to know what, what a great conflict I have for you. The word conflict in the original is uh, agona. We get our word to agonize from that root. And so he was agonizing over this group of believers for them to embrace, to know to walk in the, in the totality of, of Christ in them, the hope of glory, which he had shared in the previous verse, uh, in the previous chapter, verse 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He was agonizing that that truth would be theirs, that it wouldn't be a... Um, something that they missed out on. 
Now, as I mentioned, uh, one of the reasons that he agonized in this way is he wanted them to be sure to know the full assurance, as he says there in verse 2, to being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. I mean, this brother, it's somewhat um, amazing to me, having never met these believers face to face, that he would carry this kind of agony for them. And I don't know if you've ever met some other Christians in your life that, that are endeared to your heart and you desire that something deep and valuable and, and tangible becomes theirs because you know one day you won't be in their life anymore. One day you'll be gone and you're, you're watching this young believer you know, grow and, and begin to blossom in the Lord. This is the heart of, of the apostle that they would come to the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of, of God. What was it? That mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory, both of the Father and of Christ. That there, he, He's trying to take them from shallow water to deeper water in God. Now, I remember years earlier when uh, our children were younger and grandchildren particularly younger. And you go to the, the riverside of, of a body of water and a uh, picture comes to my mind of them being in, you know, little tiny bathing suits about this. They're, you know, three feet high or so. They're very young. And what do you want them to do? You want them to stay in the shallows because that's safe. And you keep your eye on them. But you also know that it would be a good thing when they're able, when they're ready, that they learn how to navigate deeper waters, that they learn uh, the, the act of swimming, of, of treading water, of knowing how to uh, get from one side of the river to the other on their own accord. And this is the same thing in the body of Christ. Beloved, you and I need to constantly be pressing out from shallow waters of, of simple faith into the greater and deeper waters of the truth of the gospel message. That it's Christ in you, which is that hope of glory. That we are knit together in Christian love. And to have those assurances because we are fully understanding the mystery of God, of both the Father and of Christ. And then he, he seals it when he's talking about the treasures. He says, in whom, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice he does not say from whom. He says, in whom. There is a story about the great William Randolph Hearst. He was flipping through a book and he saw this beautiful picture. And uh, 
of course, struck by the, the artistry and everything. He, you know, he was a very wealthy man. He had many servants. And so he called some of his staff to him and he showed him the picture and he said, I want you to find this picture and purchase it for me. And let me tell you right now, your jobs are on the line. If you don't find it, I'm, I'm firing you. Well, any of us in that position, will, oh, we're going to find that picture. And so painstakingly, these uh, staff members went through looking for this picture, uh, traversing many miles, looking in several continents, accessing every database they could to try and find this picture. Three months went by, and uh, William Randolph Hearst finally calls them back and says, all right, did you find it? And they said, uh, yes, sir, we did. Said, well, did you purchase it? And they said, uh, no, sir, we didn't. They said, well, why not? I told you if you didn't purchase it, your jobs would be on the line. And they said, well, sir, we we discovered that the picture is already in your warehouse. And that's the point that the apostle is trying to make, is that Christ in you, you already have in the warehouse of, of who you are as his child, as a son and a daughter of the Most High God, as one who has said, Christ, I believe in your efficient blood. And I acknowledge that my sin is greater. And would you come into my life and forgive me on my sin? When you've invited Christ in as your Savior and Lord, you have in the warehouse of your relationship with him all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no need to just kind of start, you know, well, it's Christ plus. No, it's not Christ plus. The Apostle Paul is seeking to affirm them in that treasure, which is theirs. But he knew that this affirmation was important and that it was timely because, as we've mentioned in previous studies, there was developing in the, the area of Colossae and Laodicea and around, which eventually became to be known as a her uh, the Colossian heresy, which also then eventually became uh, Gnosticism. And so this uh, twisted kind of immersion of, of different thoughts and possibilities about who God is and how, uh, how mankind comes into relationship with God began to filter their way into the Colossae area. And the next thing that Paul wanted to deal with is the threats to them uh, knowing what they hold in the treasures. And he says here in verse 4, 
He says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And there were two main uh, threats to them walking in the, the truth or the knowledge of the treasures that they possessed. One was persuasive words, and the other he comes to over in verse 8. Let's read through it again. He says, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, Colossian believer, some of what you already know to be so about your faith in Christ doesn't mean you need to go out and gain a, a new knowledge or a, a deeper knowledge, which I'll talk a little bit about the, the error of Gnosticism in, in just a moment. But he's saying to them, some of what you need to do as a Christian is to simply walk out your faith. Uh, the illustration of quicksand is used, and there's something that's called near quicksand. We know, we all know what quicksand is. You you step, and there's this uh, product in the earth, the way it's laid, and immediately you begin to sink, and you're sucked down. But there's something on the fringe or on the edge called near quicksand, and if you come to something like that and you just stand still you run the risk also of being sucked in. But if you continue to walk over it, you bypass its danger. And that illustration, as poor as it is, is used with our Christian faith as well, to just continue to walk in faith. How do I walk? I, uh, how do we walk out our faith? I, I love someone uh, years ago, I've used this many times, we'll continue to use it, use the illustration of four tires on a car being the essentials of how we walk out our Christian faith. One of those tires is the Word of God. The other tire is prayer. A third tire is Christian fellowship. And the fourth tire is Christian service. The Word of God, of course, we know is is, uh, has multiple applications. I mean, that is something we're doing right now. We're, we're sitting in front of the Word of God. Someone is teaching the Word of God. And so being taught the Word of God is one way in which the Word of God is in, uh, a necessity in the life of a Christian. But another is, is for me personally to be reading this Word, to be uh, placing its truths in my heart, to letting it wash me and cleanse me and give me a proper perspective. The Word of God. But then we go over to prayer, and prayer, multiple applications as well. Prayer, uh, someone once wisely said that prayer is praise, petitions, and intercession. This morning, as we were worshiping God, we've come to praise you, praise you. It's a form of prayer but also uh, petitioning. Lord, today I'm asking, and you know we begin to ask the Lord for him to work in our lives, and then we, we begin to pray for someone else, those firefighters, those people that are displaced. We're interceding for them. Three aspects of prayer. 
the Word of God, prayer, essentials in walking out our, our faith, Christian fellowship. Now, those of you who might think Christian fellowship is coming to church on Sunday, you're absolutely partially right. Because you are here and we are enjoying Christian fellowship in that there are Christians in the room and perhaps those of you watching at home, and we're enjoying a unity, a oneness. But it's not the only place. I mean, as I said last week, the church is not a place we go, it's who we are. And so Christian fellowship is something that only Christians can enjoy when Christians spend time together in any environment, in the home, out of the home, doing things together, where, where it may not be the, you know, the deep conversations of the thing of Christ every moment, but there's a, a root, a nucleus in this that we have with these others that we're spending time with. Christian fellowship, a necessity. And then fourth tire, here we are. Oh, how do I walk it out? Christian service. Something you do for the Lord that requires your time, energy, and talent and is sacrificial. Okay, so I wasn't even going to get on this this morning, but I mean, I think it's important what Paul is saying. Hey, as you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him, continue in the word, continue in prayer, continue in Christian fellowship, continue in your service to him. Rooted, verse 7, built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And beware, he says in verse 8, he brings the second threat, beware anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Two threats. Being deceived with persuasive words, being cheated through philosophy. And those threats, as real as they were to the Colossians at that time, are still true today to the church. Now, as I mentioned, what was happening is the Colossian heresy, which evolved into Gnosticism, was floating around. Here's some of its principles. It was Jewish in nature in that it stressed... Uh, a need to observe laws and ceremonies, but it was also um, philosophical because the, the Gnostics would emphasize that the believer needed to have a deeper knowledge of life, a deeper knowledge of, of the workings of mankind. It involved the worship of angels, and different mediators from God to man. It also was exclusive. Gnosticism uh, in its core believed that there were only a select few that actually could attain to these deeper philosophical truths. And though it mentioned Christ in its uh, belief system, it stripped Christ of his deity, which is exactly why Paul 
saw it and knew it to be a threat. And beloved, being deceived by persuasive words and being cheated through philosophy is still... I mean, that old creep Satan doesn't come up with any new tricks. He just takes the old tricks and tries to put a new spin on them. And, I mean, how many believers today will... uh, get swept away by charismatic leaders that want to manipulate them. I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again, there are two uh, specific cults that have sought to uh, use persuasive words to deceive people, one of which is Jehovah's Witness, the Watchtower Society. They use a lot of biblical terms but the Jesus that they're talking about is not the Jesus of our Bible. It is not a biblical Christ. In fact, they've said he's already returned and he's in a basement somewhere in New York and, and this is it. This is the, the new millennium. This is it. Uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, if you ever talk to Mormons, they use a lot of same Bible terms. But also true is that the Jesus of their Bible is not the Jesus of our Bible. He's a, a, a created being, a spiritual being, and Lucifer is his brother. And you all can be gods. And take a look at how many people have been led away by persuasive Words. And you, you take a look at just, that's not even Orthodox Christianity because Orthodox Christianity names those organizations and others not as Christian organizations. They're called cults. But you take a look at Orthodox Christianity and there's a lot of... Um, cheating that goes on and persuasive words. Uh, the worship team, we recently took time to watch, again, the documentary, The American Gospel, Christ Alone. You can rent it on Amazon or YouTube. It's two hours long. It talks about the Word of Faith movement and how many people have gotten swept away and cheated with charismatic leaders that, I mean, what's going on in a... In a um, a stadium with someone like Joel Olstein. Positive thinking. You are not a sinner, he's been quoted as saying. Now, you guys might be a little quiet this morning, but it's okay. I'm, I bring these things out because I want you, just like Paul wanted them, to be aware that the threat of pers- Suasive words and being cheated through philosophy is still very real today. Um, I'd be happy to make copies of it. I plan to, but I didn't get to it this morning. There's this chart we use in a in a, a counseling, a biblical counseling exercise called self-confrontation. You, you get to one of the chapters and it deals with the cheating that goes on in uh, philosophical thought. Let me share a couple with you and I'll put some out. Uh, 
for you next week. I'll have some copies out there if you like. So in other words, philosophy. I don't know if any of you go to counselors today, but if you're going to a secular counselor and you are a Christian, I would ask you to be careful. I would ask you to pray that if that's in fact what God would have you to do because secular counseling flies in the face of biblical truth. And, and also, there are Christian counselors that may have the letters after their name, which meant they had to go through an educational process and learn the truths of philosophy. So here are some truths you might find very interesting. Philosophical view of man and how he is to solve his problems. First, let's back up. Do we agree that mankind has problems? Do we agree that mankind has problems? Yes, okay. So we know we're not good, right? There, there's a need to solve problems in humanity. So philosophy teaches that the basic view of man's approach to solving problems is actually um, fivefold. There's the instinctual approach, there's the behavioral approach, there's the positive potential approach, there's the spiritist approach, and then there's God's way. Okay? So hang with me. We'll just do a few. I won't bore you with the whole thing. But some of this may sound familiar. And you might go, oh my goodness, that's philosophy? Uh, I didn't know that was philosophical. So in the instinctual approach to man to solve his problems, it says that man is driven by instinct. Uh, he does things, fight, flight, seeks food. He's instinctual. Now, the cause of his problems are that his instincts have been thwarted. The cure for that is for him to follow his instincts, and counseling terms that are used in that environment are terms like psychoanalysis, uh, irrational thought of analysis of dreams, hypnosis therapy, psychodrama, uh, resocialization, personality testing. Counselor terms are terms like ego, id, drives, libido, consciousness, subconsciousness. Hold on. Okay, behavioral. Uh, the behavioral approach to solving, this view says that man is conditioned or programmed. Their, their, their behavior is conditioned or programmed. Now, the cause of their problems is that they have been wrongly influenced by the environment or circumstances. Oh, look where that child grew up. He grew up in a really bad area. That's why he's having such a hard time. The cure is to recondition or reprogram the person, according to their view. And counseling techniques that are used in this situation are manipulation of behavior by use of positive and negative stimuli to train to respond to and re uh, to reward and to punishment, to, to learn how to reward someone and how to punishment. I mean, it's amazing to me. Uh, 
so much of this just goes on. Positive potential. Last one I'll do. Well, no, second to the last one. Positive potential says their view of man is that man is intrinsically good. There's no one really bad. I mean, we're all good. Man is intrinsically good, has everything necessary within himself to solve his own problems. The cause of problems for someone like this is that their mind has been blocked by negative thinking and influences. The cure is they need to release their potential, the self within. And so they use uh, techniques like reflecting of thoughts, uh, presentation, uh, draw out answers out of a counselor's own inner resources, positive thinking, self-assertion, self-esteem, self-worth. Okay, you ready? Here's what God says. God's view of man is that he has fallen and is a sinner. The cause of man's problems is that he has rebelled against God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That he has not believed in God, John 3.16. That he has been disobedient to God. He has denied God and the power of God. That man's problems begin there. And the cure for that is that by grace, man would accept his position as one who has fallen because of sin and recognize that Christ died for that sin and willfully and humbly place their faith in Christ to forgive them of their sin And begin to walk in loving obedience to God, growing and maturing. Techniques that God uses are things like listening to the wisdom in Proverbs. Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting 2 Timothy. To encourage us in Hebrews, 11, uh, Hebrews 3. To admonish us, Romans 15. To stimulate us, Hebrews 10. To strengthen us, to teach us, to restore us, to train us. I mean, persuasive words and being cheated through philosophy is still happening today. The good news as though the threats are there, there's an antithesis to that threat, to those threats. He wanted them to understand the treasures that they have. He wanted them to know the threats that are out there, but he also wanted them to know the truth. And the truth he gives them there in verses 9 and 10. He says, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Read it with me, verse, 11, uh, verse 10. Let's say it. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Nothing less, 
nothing more, nothing else than Jesus. Do you hear that? Nothing less, nothing more, nothing else than Jesus. That's, that's who, what we need, who we need. And fortunately, in giving us that truth, God the Father has allowed that truth to be written, to be recorded, to be passed down through an inerrant scripture that causes everyone who will believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, not a created being, God who took on human flesh because of his love for mankind, his love for you and I, for no greater love has any man than this but that he would lay down his life for another. Jesus laid down his life for you, for me. Why? So that we could walk in unbroken fellowship with his Father. So that we could once again know the glorious truth of what it means to be in relationship with the true and the living God. Now maybe this morning as we remind ourselves of that sacrifice that took place the way in which this privilege became ours through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That as we were looking at some of these things that are believed by others and, and that others get persuaded by or are cheated by, maybe you this morning are, are here ready to say, Lord, I, I've almost embraced some of that. Can I just encourage you? That's what the blood of Christ does this hour. It just washes again. It cleanses afresh. For which one of us doesn't need that daily? We have the opportunity this morning again to just say, Lord, you're God. I am not. I'm a sinner. You have saved me. I receive the efficient work of your blood on the cross and I am ready to walk in newness of life because of the forgiveness of my sin that's available for us today that's available for us right now will you join me as word prayer and I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward Father, we thank you for your servant Paul's clear declaration of the treasure that we have, all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge hidden in the person and the relationship we have with Christ. We are grateful this morning of, of the warning of the threats that exist, but we are even more grateful for the reality of the truth. That you love us, 
so much that you demonstrated that love on the cross of Calvary thousands of years ago. And all you ask of us is that we believe, repent, and are born again. That in the newness of that life we can walk in the assurance of our salvation and our Savior himself. Receive our thanks today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.